morning. We are in week number two of a four-part, four-ish part series. We're not sure how long we're going to take it, but uh, week number two. And there are a few things, if you're anything at all like me, a few things I know about you then. Even if you don't like to read, when your phone goes off, you read your text messages, if you're like me anyway, or you get to them as soon as you can. Um, you read your emails, your Gmail. If it's from somebody you know, then you're going to read it. At the junk mail, we just go right by. But if it's from someone you know, you're going to read that. We read what is important to us. That's what we do. We read what is important to us. What we also know about you, if you're anything like me, is the very fact that you're in this room this morning, it, it means to me that you are open to hearing from God, that you would like to somehow, some way, hear from God. But why don't we? Well, so often it's because maybe we're busy or maybe we're too busy or maybe we just don't read. How much sense does it make? How much sense does it make that we are too busy to hear from our creator, the creator of the universe who has spoken his word directly to you and directly to me? He's given us his word, but yet we would look at God and say, I'm just not a reader. God, I'm just not a reader. I don't read. I don't read. How much sense does that make? But yet we tell that to God over and over and over and over again. We say, God, I would love you to be involved in my life. I would love you to be a part of my life. But could you just tell it to me? I mean, could you just let me know? And let me dream it or let me hear it from somebody else. I'm just not into reading, God. I'm not into reading what you wrote for me. What if the very thing that we have been waiting for, hearing from God, what if, what if he's already told us? What if he's already spoken to us? What if he's already hit you up on Facebook Messenger? What if he's already Facebooked you or Gmailed you or instant messaged you? What if you're waiting on him, but God might be waiting on you to simply read the message that he has sent you? Because we said this last week, you are most frequently, most frequently going to hear from God through your eyes. And we at Stuttgart Harvest Church want you to develop a lifelong habit of reading your Bible every single day, a little bit every single day. Because we do believe that God has already spoken to you and he's waiting on you to open his message. And someone says... Okay, Harley, okay, but, but I don't believe in the Bible. I just don't believe that. Which is strange to hear because the Bible is not a that. The Bible is not really even a book. The Bible is actually a library. It's a library. It, it's, it's a whole collection, a library of 66 books from history to poetry, to even personally written letters to very specific people. 66 books written by over 40 different authors over the course of thousands of years. But all of those books brilliantly tell one story, and it's God's redemption of his creation. It's the redemption of you and me, the redemption of mankind. One can't simply say... I. I don't believe in the Bible because that, that doesn't actually make sense. I mean, we can't walk into the library down the street and say, I don't believe in the library. 
It doesn't work that way. You see, the canon of the Christian Protestant Bible is 66 books, a library. It's divided into two sections. God did not call this two sections. We kind of gave it a name, divided it into two sections called the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that division exists because the word testament means covenant. So it's the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. Or you could call it a covenant is a contract. It's the old contract, which really is not one contract, but it was a, a handful of contracts. It's the old contracts and then the new contract. The Old Testament describes how we, as God's creation, how we blew it. It, it, it describes how God uh, initiated what's called the Mosaic Law. It, it, it leads all the way up to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament was originally written in the language Hebrew, and for the Hebrew people, they take the first five books, they call them the Torah, and it's the five books written by Moses. So God gives Moses this information, says, write this down, and it's the first five books, same five books, first five books in what we call the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, it contains history, it contains wisdom, and it contains poetry. It contains what's called the major prophets, which is not like major league prophets, not like the real big prophets, the pros, the big guys, the major prophets. No, they're only called major because they wrote down a lot. I mean, it, major means they wrote a lot. And so it's the major prophets, and then it's got also the minor prophets. And the minor prophets are not the lesser prophets. They're not the minor league prophets. Nope. They were just as important, but they just didn't write as much. So it's about quantity. The major prophets wrote a lot. The minor prophets wrote a little, but very potently. So that's how it's divided in the Old Testament. And we would, might ask the question, very common question, well, how, how do I know it's accurate? How do I know that what I'm reading in the Old Testament is what was really written, what was really handed down from God to Moses when he wrote even those first five books? How do I know that it's accurate? And that is a great question. So let me kind of tell you how that happened. Um, uh, as the Jewish people became a nation, as God said that they would, God said, I'm, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to lead you as long as you follow me. But if you don't follow me, then I'm going to, hey, I'm going to step back. I'll warn you, but eventually I'm going to step back and I'm going to let you be conquered as God knew they would. And they did. They kind of moved away from God and God said, okay, here, here goes what I said was to come. He stepped back and he allowed them to be conquered. And he said, you're going to be in exile. It's going to be 70 years. Guess what? Guess about how long their exile was. Yeah, it was 70 years, just like God had said. But while they were in exile, they lost all touch with their heritage. They lost all touch with uh, the Torah, with God's, God's law, with what we call the Old Testament. They lost all touch with it, which is very sad for them. And so at the end of the 70 years, when they began to come back, one man, Ezra, he got a copy of the Torah and he began reading. He gathered all the people who had come back to the nation and he read aloud the Torah. It was an amazing time. And from that moment on, they began to initiate a very specific system of how they would get more copies of the Torah. 
And so it over time, here is what that kind of looks like. I'm going to give you a summary, not an exhaustive list, just a summary of some of the ways that they copied the Torah and some of the regulations they followed so that they could make sure that the original, what they had, would be what they copied and what they provided. So here are some of the ways that they did that. They had very specific instructions about what they could write on as far as to use uh, as, as paper. And they had very specific information about what they could write with and what the ink could be and be made of. I mean, they went to every detail. They even had, uh, so they had their, uh, the original version they were using, and then they would copy from that and copy over here. They would make the copy. It was all done by hand. And they would write each word, each letter by hand. And they had a guideline. Each column, they, in the Hebrew language, they read from the right to the left. Each column had a very specific number. It could, it could not be any less than 48 lines, and it could not be any more than 60 lines. And that was because they wanted it to be there. They wanted it to be able to be read, not to cram too much in there. Um, they had to verbalize. As they were writing a word, they had to say that word. They could do nothing from just memory. They had to say that word. And they had to go over here and look at the word, one word, and then write that one word. They couldn't come over here like we do and look at a sentence and then come over here and write the sentence. They couldn't do that. They had to look at one single word, and then they would come over and write that one single word as they said that word. They couldn't look at two and write, okay, here's two words, I'm going to go write these two words, because that was doing it from memory. They couldn't do that. One word, and they would write down one word. Pretty interesting. That way, nothing was done from memory. It was done an exact copy of that right there, one word at a time. And every single word Every single line, every single paragraph, every single page was counted. In fact, they called the people who were doing the copying, who were actually doing the writing, they're, they're called scribes. And the Hebrew word for that means one who counts letters. Because this is what would happen. Every Hebrew letter had a corresponding number. Every single letter had its own number. And they would take the letters on the line and they would add them up to come up with a number. And they would go to the line they just wrote and add up, up the numbers corresponding to each letter to make sure this number matched this number. Then they would do that for the paragraph. And make sure that paragraph's number matched this paragraph's number. Then they would do that for the column. To make sure that column matched the number of this column. Then they would do that for the page. And not only did they do it that specifically. Then when they were done with the whole copy. They would find the absolute middle paragraph of the whole Torah. And from the middle paragraph they would then find the middle word. And from that word, they would go to the beginning of the Torah and count every single letter all the way to the middle letter. And then they would go to the end of the Torah 
and count every single letter all the way to the middle letter to make sure this number matched this number, matched the same one that's in the one they were doing, the copy they were making. Does that make sense? They went to the extreme, and we are so grateful that they did. They're called the people of the book. They took it very seriously. And because they went to these extremes and many more, that's just a sampling, because they went to these extremes and many more, many more, we have a very accurate copy today that looks very much like the ones from thousands of years ago. Do you find that interesting? You say, okay, so Harley, so how accurate is it? What we have today versus them. Well, we have some good news because, you know, we didn't have any that were super, super old until, until the late 70s or in the 70s, something was found inside of a cave. They began to find in these caves in the Middle East, they found some ancient, ancient copies of the Old Testament. They have found pages from every single book in our Old Testament today, except maybe one book they can't, they can't, have not yet found pages for the book of Esther. But every other book in our Old Testament, they have pages from those books that date back as far as 100 B.C., 100 years before Jesus was ever born. They have copies, handwritten, actual copies of the Torah, that old, thousands of years old. So you say, okay, well, how accurate is what we have today compared to what they found that's thousands of years old, a hundred years before Jesus was ever born? How accurate are those to what we're reading today? There are, in the Torah, there are almost 80,000 words in the Torah, 79,000 words. In the Torah. Of those words, there are 304,805 letters, Hebrew letters, in the Torah. Of that many words and of that many letters, how many might you say would be, you know, good to handwritten copies that, that would have a mistake here or there? We would say, well, I mean, out of 300,000 letters, I mean, if they found 25,000 mistakes, then that would be understandable. There's not 25,000 mistakes. You would say, well, I mean, even if there were 1,000 mistakes, that would, I mean, there's 300,000 letters. I could foresee 1,000 mistakes. There's not 1,000 mistakes. When you compare the ancient with what we have, there's not 1,000. You say, well... I mean, it would make sense if there were hundreds. There's not hundreds. I mean, I would understand certainly it would be, it would be amazing. It would be a miracle if there were just 25 mistakes out of 300,000 letters. There's not 25. The discrepancies between what they found, the old copies, and the Torah... The discrepancies, nine letters. And here's the cool thing. 
those are not even discrepancies over words. The nine differences are in spelling. How accurate is what we have compared to the ancient text? That's really accurate. And we're so grateful that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, this nation took it so seriously to provide us with such an accurate, accurate copy of God's old covenant, old contract with us. Is that not spectacular? So you say, how, how can I trust it? It's accurate. You see, God has given us this, this library. He's given us this, and it's from the personality of men, as they wrote it down from their personality, but the content is from God. You see, the Old Testament establishes, after we blew it as a race, as mankind, the, the Old Testament establishes now God's redemptive plan, His story. He takes a nation and from that nation separates them from the entire world, not because they are better, but He needs them separate because it is from that nation He is going to send His Messiah. The Bible is not a bunch of different stories. No. No. The Bible is one story with a bunch of chapters. And here's my encouragement to you this morning. I know this sounds very bold, but just hang in here with me for just a moment. I'm encouraging you this. Stop trying to figure God out. Stop trying to understand God. And the reason is we don't have the capacity to understand God. We don't have the capacity to figure God out. If, if this, this is water, you cannot take two gallons of water and pour it into a one-gallon container. And you cannot take the understanding of God and put it into our human minds. It just simply doesn't fit. You don't have to understand God in order to know God. Because He's given us His Word to help us know Him. He gave it to us to help us know Him, not to help us understand Him. I think one of the biggest lies of our day is this. If I don't understand God, I can't trust God. If I can't figure out God, then I can't have my faith in God. Now, to help you understand this, I want to introduce you to my friends here that I've drawn for you. This is Mr. and Mrs. Flat. Mr. and Mrs. Flat. They, uh, we've got them on the screen as well. Mr. and Mrs. Flat, they, you know, don't giggle. They are just, they're limited. They are limited to this two-dimensional world. I'm not limited to that world. I have three or four dimensions, and I can operate in those, but they can't even understand that. They can't see it. All they know for them is this two-dimensional world. That's all they know. They, they 
can't know anything beyond this. They just, in fact, I can be closer to them than they will ever be able to be close to each other. That's as close as they're going to be able to get. I, but I can get in here and I can touch him. And I can come over here and I can touch her. In fact, I can actually touch both of them at the same time. I can scratch their little heads. Both of them at the same time. They can never do that. They're limited right there. I can be closer to them than they can be closer to each other. And I can be closer to them, really, than they can be close to me. I can reach out and touch them. You know the strange thing, though? If I, if I were to put my finger, and I, if I were to place it into their two-dimensional world, they would not see my hand. They, they wouldn't see my hand. They wouldn't even see my finger. If I were to enter this two-dimensional world, do you know what they would see? I've got a drawing of it. It's on the screen. They would see a circle. They would just see a, a circle coming at them. That's all they would see. Because they can't understand what's behind that circle. They can't see it. Their dimensions, their limitations, their reality will not allow them to see what's on the outside of this. I can see all. I can see behind. I can even see what's behind them. They can't see that. I can see what's out here in front coming to. They can't see that either. I can see what's over here and over here, and I can touch. I can. They're limited. They're absolutely limited. This is interesting, though. How could I, I created them, I drew them this morning. And as their creator, how could I maybe help them have an understanding of who I am? Because they cannot comprehend these dimensions that I live in. That makes no sense to them. It's like, yeah, describe God to me. Well, he's a circle. That's what we know. He's a circle. They don't know this. They can't understand this. If I want to describe myself to them in a whole new way, what might I do? Well, I could give them something in writing. I could do that. But here's what I think the loving act would be. What if I chose to enter into their world? What if I chose to leave these dimensions and set them aside and enter into their two-dimensional world as a two-dimensional being in their world to help them understand me, to help them know me? I could become one of them in their world with the same limitations they have I could put on myself and enter that world. And that's exactly, it's exactly what God did for us. He chose to leave the amazement of his world and his existence and put on the flesh and blood of us and enter from whatever number of dimensions God lives in. He chose to limit himself to three or four dimensions and enter into our world. And guess what? He then had it all recorded and written down. Not all, but everything he wanted us to know. He had it written down. So that even though we were not around when Jesus entered into that world, 
we have the whole story given to us by God in the library called the Bible. And it doesn't start in the New Testament. The story of Jesus begins all the way back at creation. God wants you to know Him. He's really not interested in you understanding Him. He wants you to know Him. We're going to jump for a moment into the Old Testament. Because I want to show you just one of the ways how God wants you to know Him. Let me give you some context to catch you up. Because we're at a very specific part of God's story in the Old Testament where we're going to be reading. So to catch you up, God created everything. And as part of that creation, he created Adam and he created Eve. He gave them one rule and they chose to break it. At that moment, everything, everything imploded. But God knew it was going to happen. So before all of that, he already had his redemptive story ready to enact, ready to pull the trigger on and let it happen. And at that moment, that's when it began, his redemptive story, as soon as they blew it. And so God chose a specific man. He knew he was coming in the future because it was God's plan, but he chose it way back here before creation. He said, I'm going to start all of this with a guy named Abraham. And he went to Abraham when the time came and he said, Abraham, you are one man. And I'm going to turn you, this one man, into a great nation. And all of the earth, all of the world, all of the people groups among the world will be blessed through you because of this one nation. And so, Abraham's like, well, that's a late start because I'm about 100 years old and I don't have any children. And God said, not a problem. He turns Abraham into a great nation. Millions of people. Pretty amazing. And he chooses to grow this nation to a great size while they are in slavery. Now that's interesting to me that part of God's story would be people who are trapped, who are enslaved. That doesn't sound very comfortable. It doesn't sound very fun. It doesn't sound very prosperous. Sounds quite horrible. But it was part of God's plan. He grows them into a great nation, and they are slaves. And then... He selects, had already selected, and when the time came, he said, Moses, you're going to lead these people to freedom. Moses doesn't want to do it, but he ends up doing it, and he begins the process. He goes and meets with the Pharaoh, the king, and he's in the process of leading them to Pharaoh, and guess what happens? Pharaoh's like, ha, huh, great. No, not going to happen, and he makes it harder on the Israelites. He, he, he makes it their life miserable so they were slaves now they are miserable mistreated slaves because Moses tried to set them up so they could leave he just did what God asked him to do that's all he did he didn't make this up on his own he simply did what God asked him to do and guess what it got worse sometimes sometimes life gets worse even when you're doing exactly what God has asked you to do I can tell you without a doubt, my life since I became a Christian has been far more miserable than my life before I was a Christian. God is not interested in Harley's comfort. God is interested in me 
knowing him. So he takes this nation and he says, my mission for you is not your comfort and not your pleasure. My mission for you is for you to know me. But now things have gotten worse. And this is where we pick it up with Moses having a conversation with God. Exodus chapter 5, starting with verse 22. Then Moses went back to the Lord and he protested, Why, O oh God, why have you brought all this trouble on your own people, Lord? And why did you send me? God, why did you get me involved? Verse 23, ever since I came to Pharaoh as your spokesperson, doing exactly what you asked me to do, by the way, God, he has been even more brutal to your people, and you, God, have been doing nothing to rescue them. Verse 6, I mean, sorry, chapter 6, verse 1. Then... The Lord told Moses, Now, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. When he feels the force of my strong hand, he will let the people go. In fact, he will force them to leave this land. What God is getting ready to tell us is this. That God can be known. And one of the ways that you can know God is through judgment. Nobody likes judgment. There are three groups of people in this story right now that are going to know God through judgment. Here's the first. The Egyptians are getting ready to know God through judgment. He is getting ready to spank them royally they are going to know god through pain and judgment they're going to know him they're going to know his strength they may not follow him but they're going to know the strength of god through through his judgment in just a little bit it's going to happen later in the story there's a second group that's going to know god through this judgment and that's the hebrew people because they're going to see what god does to the egyptian people they're going to see God's judgment poured out on the Egyptian people. And they're going to know God more because of what they see. And there's a third group of people here. And that group, guess who? It's you. And it's me. As we read this story, we have the opportunity, like the Hebrew people, to know God through his judgment. God says, you will know me. One of the ways you can know me is through my judgment. And all the world can know him too. Verse 2, and God said to Moses, he's not through. God has a lot to say here. <laughs> he says, I am Yahweh, the Lord. In other words, Moses, don't forget who you're talking to. Don't forget you are trying to know me. And I believe that God, I really believe this, that God desires you to be a friend of God. I believe God desires to be your friend. But don't forget, He is not your buddy. He desires to be your friend, but He is not your buddy. He is not your equal. God is not a genie. 
It's not a genie that we can say, okay, I found something in your word, God. I see that now. You have to do this for me. I found it. You're my If I say this, you have to do this. If I do this, you have to do this. I saw it in your word. God is not your genie. He's not your buddy. You will never understand God. This is God. And he says, there are none beside me. And we will never understand him. But you can know him. He goes on in verse 3. God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty. But I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. You know what God is saying here? I believe that God is saying, Moses, you are on a need-to-know basis. They didn't need to know this. I didn't tell them. They didn't need to know it. And Moses, you're on a need-to-know basis. If you need to know it, I'm going to tell you. And guess what? We're on a need-to-know basis too. He has and will tell us what each of us need to know. He goes on in verse 4. And I reaffirmed my covenant with them. And he's talking about part of this old covenant, this old testament. He's saying, I reaffirmed it with them. It says, under its terms, I promised to give them the land of Canaan where they were living as foreigners. And you can be sure, this is verse 5, you can be sure that I have heard the groans of the people of Israel who are now slaves to the Egyptians. God is saying to Moses, I know exactly what is going on. I see it and I hear it. But my goal, Moses, my goal is not their comfort. That's not my mission. That's not what I'm after. My goal is for them to know me. And beyond that, these people are playing a a, a greater role for all of the world that they have no idea about. It's not about their comfort. It's about the world coming to know my creation coming to know me it's not about what's happening right now in their comfort he said i see it i know what's going on you're not letting me know anything moses you're not my equal i know what's going on and he says and i am well aware of my covenant with them God is saying, Moses, that's my part. I know what I've promised them. You don't have to remind me. I know. And if it's my part, my part will be done. I know. He goes on. He says, therefore, say to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will free you from your oppression and I will rescue you from slavery in Egypt. And God is saying to the people, you're going to know me in judgment as you see judgment poured out. But you know what? You will also know me in my grace. So I'm going to free you. You haven't earned it. You haven't worked for it. I could just leave you there. But I'm going to free you 
You're going to know me from my grace. He says, I will redeem you with a powerful arm. And that's grace. He didn't have to do that. They're going to know that grace from God. And great acts of judgment, he says. We will know God from His grace. Or we will know God from His judgment. And no matter which side of grace you are on, no matter which side of judgment you are on, you can know God. Verse 7. I will claim you as my own people and I will be your God. That's grace. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the oppression in Egypt. That's grace. Verse 8, I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the covenant, the promise, the contract of grace. He says, I will give it to you as your very own possession. And from this moment, the Israelites begin to head toward that land that God promised them. And it was all part of his redemptive story. And it's a redemptive story that involves knowing God through grace and knowing God through judgment. And God ends this by saying, I am the Lord. I believe God is telling us that we can't ever understand God. We will never understand the Lord, but you can know Him even though you don't understand Him. His redemptive story starts all the way back in Genesis. You see, you don't have to understand how the world was created. We can get glimpses and we can get a peek as to how it may have happened, how it could have happened. We can get ideas and theories and thoughts about how creation, what it was and what it was not, but we'll never understand it. But we don't have to understand how God created in order for us to know the Creator. We don't have to understand how God could flood the entire world and sail one family out on a boat and save them and start over again. We don't have to know how that happened in order for us to know the Creator. You don't have to understand how God could take a man who was swallowed by a fish and then spit him back out and have him go evangelize an entire nation. We don't, have to, we don't have to understand how that could happen. In fact, I'm going to say something bold here. I believe that story really happened because Jesus believes that it did. But I'm going to say to you, you don't even have to believe that that story happened in order for you to be able to know the Creator. You will never and I will never understand God. But that's a good thing. That we don't have to understand Him in order to know Him. And we're just simply asking this of you this morning. Will you start this journey of deeper 
knowledge, deeper knowing, relationally knowing God. And God's story of redemption starts here. All the way back in the Old Testament, the old covenant, the old contracts that God had with man. You don't have to understand how in order to get to know the who. Here's all we're asking you to do. Will you start reading? Will you start reading the Old Testament even if you don't like to read? I would encourage you, if you don't have one, to get, to get a chronological life application study Bible. You can order those on Amazon.com. I'll have a link for you on Facebook later today. You could order one and read it. You can get it for your Kindle. or you get it. It's a wonderful, wonderful Bible, and it puts it kind of in chronological order. But you don't even have to get that. You could just simply start reading the Bible that you have right now. It is in the Old Testament that you will begin to know God through His grace. And we will either get to know our God through His grace, or we will get to know God through His judgment. We're asking you just to read and read on a little bit every day and just make a lifelong habit of it and don't stop. You read so that you can hear from God. You read so that you can know God. And as you read, you will have the personal opportunity to experience His grace and to know Him. Or, we can choose not to know Him. And we can have the personal opportunity to experience His judgment and to experience God as our judge. And if we will choose to know Him and His grace, know Him through His grace, we will know Him for eternity. But if we choose to meet God as judge, then we will be judged for eternity. So my plea is this. Get to know this God through His grace. Or you will get to know God through His judgment. But it's all here. It's all in God's story. How does an infinite God, not limited by anything, how does an infinite God allow Himself to be known by a finite, limited mind? I'll tell you. He enters their story. And this story that we are reading, which is really part of your story, leads to his story. Let's pray. God, this is big. This is huge. God, you have given us your word. You have written your word for us so that we can get to know you. And we have a choice. We can meet you through your grace and be with you for eternity. Or God, we can wait for your judgment and you will be our judge. 
and we will face judgment for eternity. God, I pray that we will have a desire to open up the message you have given us. How does a loving God redeem his world? How does a loving God become known to his creation? God, you chose to become one of us. God, give us the wisdom to know what to do with what we have heard this morning and give us the courage to do it. In the name of Jesus, you, God, Emmanuel, who came to live with us. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.